um, with Christmas and New Year's Eve, or Christmas Eve, New Year's Eve. Last week we had the prophecy update. If you weren't here to listen to that, you can go online and listen to it from Mark Matthews. It was just uh, amazing. Um, just a lot of uh, the current events that, that are going on in our world today and how everything is just kind of lining up with uh, how, what God spoke about so long ago in Ezekiel. <clears throat> and so it's just getting exciting in this day and age that we live in. I'm excited about it. Um, a lot of things continue to go on. Um, pray for me. Um, this Sunday, I will be sharing the vision that I feel like the Lord has been laying on my heart to share with our church for this year and and just the direction that I feel like God continues to take us and just the next, like the next process, the next, um, the next step to uh, all that the Lord's been teaching us for the last several years. And I'm excited and nervous at the same time, you know, uh, for the last couple of weeks, I've been able to, to just spend some time in prayer and fasting and, and just allowing it to solidify in my heart before I share it with you all and, and just making sure that the, Lord, uh, the Lord's really speaking to me personally as, as a Christian, for sure, but as, as the pastor of the church, you know, to be able to convey, it's like, guys, here's a vision, man. Let's, let's go for it. If you want, man, let's go. You know, if you want to be a spectator, that's up to you, man. But it's going to be way more exciting if you're in the game, if you're going um, um, in that direction. I, I just think it's going to be phenomenal. I, I am so excited. Already seeing the Lord uh, confirm so many things in my life, personally, and, um, and just in a lot of you, without you knowing what the vision is. Uh, just hearing from some of you and, and knowing what God's doing, I'm just excited and stoked for this next year. It's not going to be an easy year, just to let you know that. Uh, but it's going to be a good year. It's going to be another good year. And I just expect that the that our lives as Christians will continue to be tougher and tougher as we approach the, the end days, the end times, as the rapture is around the corner. I just expect that the, this world um, will come against the church as it has forever but with an intensity that that the prophets and the apostles spoke about and they wish they could see and we get to live in this time and i am excited not scared excited and so um just want to let you guys know some of you guys have been involved in uh, good news clubs in the in the past and uh, the, the director for the Good News Club, Myra Marcus, um, who's been directing it for several years, passed away yesterday. <clears throat> and um, she's just been a precious, precious lady. I've had her here several times sharing with you on a Sunday morning what uh, Good News Club is, is all about. She fellowships in Hesperia, and it's just a great loss for our community, our high desert up here. She um, she was just a spitfire, man. Um, she'd come to Baldy Mesa and help run the, the Christian club there, uh, the Good News Club. And the Good News Clubs are, are for the elementary schools. And she was just going, going, going. And uh, it's a great loss. And so pray for the Marcus family. Um, again, she, because I'm like, I'll be 57 this, this month, I don't think she was much older than me. 
And uh, even if you're in your 60s or 70s, that just doesn't sound old to me anymore either. Because uh, I'm thinking, she wasn't that old, you know? But she was probably around my age, somewhere around there. So again, man, um, God's calling people home. God's calling people to the salvation. And we want to be in the forefront of it. And, uh, you know, I, I know God will put somebody else in that, in that place. As one saint goes home to be with the Lord, the Lord raises up more saints to fill the gap, to fill the battle. Because I'll tell you what, man, I was, I was texting Diana, our, our old, uh, and she is old, but our, uh, our old uh, um, receptionist, because she, she had correspondence, she knew Myra, and I said, Myra got to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come and enter the rest of the Lord, because she was a faithful servant. And so, anyway, let's just pray for her family right now and just pray as we move on here. Father in heaven, we do want to bless you and thank you, Lord God. Your word says, Lord God, that uh, <clears throat> that um, precious is the death of one of your saints, Lord. And I know in the, in the physical realm, in the worldly realm, it just doesn't make sense. But in the spiritual realm, it makes a lot of sense, Lord. These people, Lord God, who you have called, who have been sanctified, set apart for your glory and for your goodness, they now get to see you face to face. And that's our sister Myra, Lord. And I know that she is rejoicing in heaven. And uh, we, we bless you for that. But we pray for her family. We pray, God, for her church. Um, we pray for all the kids that know her, Lord God, that, have, uh, that will be hearing the news. And so we pray that, God, you will bring peace and comfort uh, throughout this high desert. Lord God, she touched so many people's lives. And... We pray that, God, her death would be a testament of, her, of, of faithfulness to you. But also, Lord, you would use it to draw even more to your kingdom. That we would continue to take ground, um, even as this, this dear sister, Lord God, was constantly taking ground and, and just influencing the hearts of the little kids. So we thank you for, for her, and we pray for her family and her church. And, God, we just thank you, Lord God, that you have used her in our lives here in this church. So we just uh, continue to pray. Pray that this evening, Lord God, you would be glorified as uh, we open up your word, that Jesus, you uh, would just speak to us and through us and help me to convey the message, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been about a month or so since we were in the book of 2 Samuel, so you can make your way over to... 2 Samuel chapter 6 this evening. Um, we've been looking at the life of David now. Um, last year around this time we started 1 Samuel and, and we got going to 1 Samuel and we saw different characters and, and David came in at about the 16th chapter, 15th chapter of, of, sec, of 1 Samuel and, and um, he was part of it but he wasn't the main character at the time. Um, we took a break for, for a summer series, but we, we, we finished 1 Samuel, and then we jumped into 2 Samuel. And 2 Samuel um, is, is the life of David, basically. And, and I know that for most of you, you, you know that in 1 Chronicles, a lot of the stories are related there, um, just in a different viewpoint. But, um, but you see the life of David and uh, he has now come unto his own. Um, he had been anointed king by, uh, by Samuel when he was about 15 years old. 
and Samuel was already up in years, but, but he was about 15 years old when, when he, he, he anointed him king, that one day he would be king. And so after that, he served under King Saul for a time, and then he was on the run from King Saul for a time. Um, he had become the king's son-in-law, and now he was a fugitive. And King Saul was trying to kill him throughout this whole time, right? And it wasn't until the death of King Saul that David was publicly anointed king. But he was anointed king over the southern kingdom of Judah. Not over all Israel, just the southern kingdom of, of Judah, which, which pertained to uh, the, the tribe of Judah and a part of Benjamin there, or most of Benjamin. And so it was a smaller area where you had... You had the, the, the 11 tribes, for the most part, up on top, and this one down here. Um, and so he was, he, he was anointed king for that area. And he was king for seven years before he became king over all of Israel, finally. After 15-some years, 15, probably get closer to 21 years later, he was finally king of all of Israel. So, so he has come into his own, and it wasn't an easy task to get there for David. He, he, even after the death of Saul and he became king of part of the kingdom, there was, a, there was strife, there was a civil war, there was, there was just these battles between the house of Saul and the house of David. And even though David knew that one day it would be only a matter of time he would become king over all of Israel because God had promised it to him. There was people that were getting hurt. There was people that were getting killed because anytime you have a civil war, you have people, families basically, fighting against one another. And that's what was happening in the life of David. And, David, and so it was no easy task when he took over because all this bloodshed had happened. All these people had gotten killed. I mean, David was no innocent man in that sense either uh, um, in, 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 in that, you know, he had guys on his team, on his, his armies that were doing stuff that were not right, like Joab. And then you had Abner, the other guy from the other um, the other army, and, and finally Joab kills Abner because Abner killed Joab's brother, and blah, blah, blah. It's just a big family fight. That's what it becomes, a big family fight. And everybody knows each other. And people are getting hurt, you know. And then Abner, before he died, he had, he had set up Saul's son, uh, Ishbosheth, so against the, the, what, what God wanted for the nation of Israel. But he propped them up as a puppet. And again, after... Abner defects from him, then Ishbosheth is killed by his men. It's just a big mess, it seems like. And, and this is what David has. <laughs> this is what he's taking over. It's like, welcome to, to royalty, bro. Scene. This is what you got now. This is what you get to, to, to battle with. And so we left off last month <laughs> with King David taking Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a neutral city. It was in between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And, and the Jebusites were still involved in it, and they still ran it. And, and it was just a, a, a nice area to, to own, but the Jebusites hadn't left. And so now he, he had said, hey, if anybody takes it, man, I will make him captain. And Joab, he goes up the, 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 the water shaft, and he takes it over. He becomes the captain of the army there. But it becomes the capital of the nation of Israel. 
And again, it was a smart move on David because he picked a neutral city. He didn't go way north. He didn't go way south. He picked a place where it was perfect. But it was a, it was a place that God already had chosen. We saw that David took more wives. He had more sons and daughters born to him. And so the years have been passing. And David's still hanging in there. And so we pick up in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel. We're going to cover this chapter only this, this evening. But let me read to verse 11. It says, Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, um, Judah, to bring them up from there, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwelled between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments, the firwood, on harp, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. And when they had come, to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and the Lord struck him there for his error. And he died there by the ark of God. And, and David became angry because the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him to the city of David. But David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. As we as we look at the first few few couple the first couple of verses again, it says that David gathered all the choice men that were around him, and it says there was 30,000. If you remember, in the last chapter, David had gathered the armies together, and they were fighting against the Philistines. And I'm sure that there was more than 30,000 in the army. There was closer to 300,000 in the army, but he had chosen these choice men, these men that he had brought to him, uh, that, that numbered about 30,000 men. And so here these guys are together again. And it almost, we almost get the sense that, that David is talking to the stadium of 30,000 men. It's like, again, when you think of those times and, 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 and how they didn't have amplifiers and mics and all this stuff, but he is going to talk to 30,000 men. And you just, to me, I just picture this, 
this big old amphitheater or something where he is going to talk to these guys. I don't know exactly how the scene looks, but be that as it may, he is talking to these 30,000 and maybe he's doing it in groups. I don't know. But you get the sense that, man, he is just talking to everybody about this whole thing. But from what we gather in First Chronicles chapter 13, which gives us the same account as this one, but it gives us an account from a priestly um, viewpoint. And so you get more information there than you would here. But then again, you have that vice versa. Some things they don't talk about that you get here. And so there in, in chapter 13 of First Chronicles, it tells us that David was consulting with the captains of thousands, the captains of, of hundreds, and every leader. And so in, in that sense, these guys represented, or, or, or they were the 30,000. And it says in, in the chapter over here, but it's, uh, it, it, it says, as before we get there, but it says in verse 2, And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to uh, Baal um, Judah. Now again, to get a fuller account, I want to go to 1 Chronicles chapter 13, if you will, just for a second, just to read a few verses there, just so we can get a fuller picture of what, what is kind of happening. And whenever we have different accounts in Scripture, it's good to be able to go to those other accounts to get the fuller picture. The Gospels is the same way. Especially the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They have, they have basically the same stories, but you read them and they're different. Now, if three of us took a road trip and we came back, we all saw the same thing, basically, but we would have a different viewpoint because I was looking at this and you were looking at that and however it was. And so it's not to contradict one another. It's, it's just getting a different viewpoint. And so in First Chronicles chapter 13, beginning in verse 2, it says, And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if it is of the Lord our God, let us send out to our brethren everywhere who are left in all the land of Israel and with them to the priests and the Levites who are in their cities and their common lands that they may gather together to us and let us bring the ark of our God back to us. For we have not inquired it, we have not inquired at it since the days of Saul. Then all the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. And so this was not some off-the-cuff decision. It's not like David woke up one day, it's like, we have to go get the Ark of the Covenant back. We have to bring it to its rightful place. It, it wasn't as, as though it was just something spontaneous. This was something that was well thought out. He, he, he was getting people's opinion and, and, and having these leaders and all these people gather around, even the, the priests and the Levites who were going to have to be a part of this whole thing, they were to, to come and do this because it was the right thing to do. The right thing to do was to finally bring the Ark of the Covenant back to its rightful place or to its rightful place, not back, but to its rightful place. After all, the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of God uh, represented the presence of the Lord. 
And it almost seems like David is saying, I want to be in the presence of the Lord. And we have not, he had not ever been in the presence of the Lord to, in that respect. The Lord had ministered to him, and, and, and yet he had never been around the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of the Lord. And even as we were worshiping earlier and, and we were talking about, I love your presence, David admired and wanted to be in the presence, but he never had the experience of being around the Ark of the Covenant. And so it was the right thing to do, to, to, to bring it back, because it had been gone from its rightful place for a hundred years. For a hundred years it had been gone. It had not been in its rightful place since Shiloh. If you remember Shiloh at the beginning of 1 Samuel. Since the days of Eli the prophet. It had been captured in the battle of Ephek in, in about 1104 B.C. And that was back in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And the Philistines had, had taken it and, and, and then the Philistines had captured it and they thought, man, we've captured their God. And if you remember the story, they put it in their temple and their t- Dagon just keeps on falling. This inanimate object keeps on falling and they're going, what the heck is going on here? And then they start getting tumors, which were hemorrhoids, um, that, they, that they started getting. And, and they just started doing, hey, man, we got to get this thing out of here, man, because we're all in pain here and we can't even sit down for a, for a while here, man. So we got to get rid of this. So they build a cart and then they send it away and to get rid of it. And it, it isn't until Second Sam, or First Samuel chapter 7, it tells us that they had taken it to the house of Obed-Abinadab. Uh, Obed, uh, That's when it came to the house of Abinadab, which was Kerjeth. Jerium, which is called in our text, Baal Judah. And they were the ones that were supposed to take care of it. And now that Jerusalem has become the capital city and the nation is back together, it was time to bring the ark of God to the nation of Israel. And to be fair, the ark had, not been, um, had not, never been under Saul's care. Because in 1 Chronicles chapter, uh, chapter 13, verse 3, it says, yeah, we haven't inquired of it since the days of Saul. Well, this was prior to Saul. So I wanted to be fair to Saul because it wasn't his fault. It was before him, but he never went to go get it. And it's interesting because Saul always had a problem in obedience to God. And so to him, having the Ark of the Covenant back was not a big deal. He was okay not having the presence of God in his life. But David is different. David has a heart to be in the presence of God. And he wants it back. And he needs it back. Because he's a king now and he wants direction and he wants God to to lead them and guide them. And he wants to be in the presence of God. Now I tell you all these things, kind of giving you all this history, uh, not just to remind you of what happened to the ark, but as we move forward in the story here, because all of this was all well thought out. It says, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. 
You see, even though it was the right thing to do to bring back the ark or bring the, the ark back from where it, it is to its rightful place, they went about it all wrong. And we see in this story here, back in our text, in chapter 6 of, of 2 Samuel, we see that, that they went around, about it all wrong. And again, with all the, the consultation that went out there, the fact that the priests and the Levites had been consulting and consulted in this whole matter. It tells us in verse 3 that the cart was set on an, or, or that the ark was set on a new cart. Now, if you could picture almost the scene, you have more than 30,000 people involved in this whole scenario. And, and, and from Jerusalem to where the ark is, is about 8 to 10 miles. So they had to travel way over there to bring the ark. And so they set up this new cart and, and they are so jo- joyous. They have all the instruments out. The band is playing and people are rocking. And man, it is just amazing. And, and, and people are just stoked because the presence of God, the ark of, the God, of God will be back in its rightful place. And this was the right thing to do, and it felt so right to all of them. But we are told that they set the ark of God on a cart. This was the right thing to do, but it was the wrong way to do it. You see, God had given Moses specific instructions on how the Ark of the Covenant was to be moved and who was supposed to move it. Everything down to the very detail of everything, the way it should be built, everything, he he had given them instruction. Now, it is quite possible that that they all thought, even the priests and the Levites, well, it's been a hundred years. It's been a hundred years since the presence of God has really been with us. And besides, we, we know that the Philistines, when, when they were getting rid of it, they built a new cart and they sent it off, right? And, 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 and even the people that, when the cart got to its destination with the cows, they even used the cart to sacrifice. They broke it all up and they used the cows as a sacrifice. So, so again, it, it must be okay if we do the same thing. You see, oftentimes we think, well, it's been a long time, The Bible was written so long ago, it's quite possible that God will see things different. It's quite possible that that He has changed His mind in in, in the things that He's already commanded. After all, it's a new era. We're not living in the past. And it's quite possible that these guys were thinking that. It's been a hundred years. So let's just go get it and bring it over here. It's no biggie. And this is what I find interesting in this whole thing that the priests and the Levites were involved in the consultation. And these cats, they knew what they were supposed to be doing. They studied the law. They gave their life to the law. They knew what the Word of God told them. And yet even them, they're not going by, by, by what they know, what they should know. They didn't put a stop to it. Knowing that God had instructed Moses and in how to do it, and maybe they just felt the pressure to compromise. Because compromise, the pressure of compromise just doesn't hit just the, the regular, it, it goes all the way up to, to the priests, to the pastors, to, to all these people. It, compromise is so easy. <laughs> We're all pressured to compromise. Because you know what? Sometimes we read the Word of God and feel like, it's kind of hard, isn't it? 
You know, I know what it says, but, ah, geez, that's kind of hard. And even pastors, even people, even leaders, whoever, I don't care who you are. It is so easy to compromise, and it is quite possible that even the priests and the Levites were going, yeah, it's not going to be that big of a deal. We know what God says, but let's just do it this way. After all, everybody is in on it. <laughs> Everybody's in agreement. It says that all the people were for it. King David wants this, guys. King David is such a godly man. And I'm sure that as the procession was going on and nothing had happened in the beginning, I'm sure the priests and the Levites, as, as they got going, going, I think it's going to be okay. We're okay. We're out of the woods, basically. God's okay with it. He must be okay with it because he didn't stop us right at the beginning. And how often do we get in situations that we're compromising and we know, because I don't care who you are, well, if you know a little bit even about the Word of God, you know when you're compromising. And when you don't get caught right in the beginning, you're going, must be okay. I think God's okay with that. And you go a week, a month, and, and, and you just keep on compromising. You're going, no lightning. Nothing's happened. I think God's okay with my sin. I think God's okay with, with what I'm doing because it does seem right to me. And so if it seems right to me, it must be good for me. <laughs> and so I'm sure that these guys probably thought, well, it's a joyous celebration. I don't want to squash it. I don't want to say, hey, guys, we should not put this on this cart. Let's not do this. And in verses 6 through 9, it tells us that it wasn't until they got to Nacon's threshing floor that something happened. Huh. This whole celebration comes to a screeching halt when the oxen stumble and somebody drops dead. That could be a damper on your, on your celebration. When somebody drops dead. And this is what I find interesting as I was studying this. A threshing floor normally is, is a flat and level piece of land where they do the work, where they take the stalks from, and the wheat, and, and, and they, thresh, you know, they thresh. But it's usually nice and level. And it's interesting because I'm sure that they had dirt roads like our dirt roads. <laughs> and the oxen didn't, didn't trip on those, those rocks and those things when they were like, kum, 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 kum. and they get on this level ground, and they probably thought, smooth sailing. And he stumbles. The oxen stumbles like stupid oxen. Another thing about the act of threshing, sometimes in Scripture it's, it's, it symbolizes destruction and judgment. <laughs> and I'm thinking here they have everything smooth sailing. It seems like everything should go good and now destruction and judgment comes upon them on this threshing floor. Now we can look at this whole thing and think that is so sad what happens here, right? They were doing the right thing, and poor Uzzah, he just tried to help. He just tried to, like, here, I don't want it to fall. It's, it's, it's an article of God. I don't want something bad to happen to it. Let me hold it up a little bit. Let me help God out a little bit, <laughs> you know? Poor thing. <laughs> and we would be 
it would be easy for us in situations like this that we think everything should be going good and something happens in our life that, that we thought would be smooth sailing that God was okay with and all of a sudden he brings us to a screeching halt and he says, no, stop. And it would be easy for us to get angry <laughs> like David was angry because his judgment was kind of harsh, don't you think? That's kind of harsh. <laughs> And so we might think, man, that's sad. But no, what's sad here is not what happened. What's sad is that they didn't do it the way God told them to do it. That's what's sad. All these people that were involved, a lot of them knew that's not the way we're supposed to do the Ark of the Covenant. Time does not change God's mind on how to do things, especially when they are in his word and it pertains to him. And it is easy for us to convince ourselves of things that are right in our own eyes, especially when everybody is agreeing with us and saying, no, I think you're okay with that as long as you're happy, as long as it feels good. You haven't heard God say no. And it's interesting because oftentimes we know that God has already said no, but we're like little kids. We try to get away with it. Mom and dad have already said no, but they're not looking right now, and if I could get away with it, I'm going to get away. And that's what we do. We convince ourselves that it must be okay because it seems so right. I like the, one, the way one, one man put it about this cart. He says, carts are made up of boards and big wheels, and they move things forward. And see, oftentimes in churches, you have your board, <laughs> you have your big wigs, your big wheels, and they just say, this is the way we're going to do it. <laughs> and oftentimes it's like, doesn't make it right. Just because you're on the board or just because you help run the church, and you're a bigwig in the church, doesn't mean it's the right thing to do because you think it's the right thing to do. Because again, they're saying, well, I think this is the way to do it. It's not always the right way to do it. It might seem right, but it's not always the right way. And, and some might think, well, poor Uzzah, man. <laughs> it's like, no, poor Uzzah wasn't so poor. He, he, he came from, and most believe that he came from a, a, a Levite family. That's why they left it at the house of Abinadab uh, because he was a Levite. And so his sons were part of this family and they knew better. They, they knew, they knew what, how they were supposed to move this thing. And here in verse 7 it says that it was his error. Was it his error that he went to touch it? Well, he knew he wasn't supposed to touch it. And again, having to stand up to the king... <laughs> might not have been the popular decision here because it could cost them something. It could cost them their life coming against the king. But you know what? It cost them his life anyways because he went against God. And the mercy and the grace that we see here, and you're going, mercy, grace, where? He, he has just killed somebody because they tried to help. The mercy and the grace that we see here is that it was only Uzzah that got killed and not everybody that was thinking involved in this whole thing. That God just didn't bring judgment upon that whole group and said, all you guys are dead because you're not supposed to do it this way. That's his mercy and that's his grace that he only got the one guy. 
And if you remember, back in 1 Samuel chapter 6, when the men of Beth Shemesh opened up the ark, there was a lot of them that died. A lot of them. One commentator that I read says this about this whole kind of thing here. I'll quote him for a little bit. He says, at the beginning of new eras in biblical history, God sometimes manifests his power in judgment to remind the people that one thing, uh, that one thing has not changed. God's people must obey God's word. After the tabernacle was erected and the priestly ministry inaugurated, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, were struck dead for willfully trying to enter the sanctuary. When Israel entered the land of Canaan and began to conquer the land, God had Achan executed for disobeying the law and taking loot from Jericho. During the early church, or the early days of the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira were killed for lying to God and his people. And here, at the start of David's reign in Jerusalem, God reminded his people that they were not to imitate the other nations when they served him. For all they needed to know was in his word. interesting as i read that i thought wow that's interesting that at the beginning of just about every movement and here we we david is being chosen as the king the the king that god wanted at the beginning he says i'm going to show you that i mean what i say don't doubt me on this (laughs) that's not because god's mean because he has to remind us once again he does not look fondly on on our sin He's not okay with our sin, even if it feels good to us. Even if we think, well, nothing's really happening. It's like God is not okay with our sin, guys. Now, the fact that David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak, it could be that he assumed that the priests and the Levites had inquired of the Lord and he thought that the Lord was or had directed them in this way and now all this happens. So it could be that he's, he's angry at the Lord because, well, you told these guys to do it. But it never tells us that David himself had inquired of the Lord. And his anger should not have been at God, but at himself for not inquiring of the Lord. But we see that even though David became angry at the Lord, the Lord didn't kill David right there. It's like, oh, you're mad too, bro? <laughs> Let me take care of that. And this is what I love about the Lord, that He is so gracious to us. I've told people, well, you can get mad at God. He's a big boy. He can handle it. It's not a good place to be, (laughs) to be mad at God, because every time, every instance that I I have seen or been a part of when someone or even myself am mad or upset or, or angry even at God, All the time, every time, God always comes out smelling like roses. (laughs) He's always right. And if I get angry, it's because I'm not understanding what He is doing. And part of that not understanding is because I'm not spending time with Him the way I should so I can understand Him and why He says what He says. 
Because several times in the book of Numbers, the children of Israel were told how to handle the articles of the tabernacle. And they were not to touch it. They were not to touch them. There were certain ways to do it, lest they die. And so this is what happens. And I know some people say, yeah, but the Philistines, they put, they put it on a, on a cart and they sent it away and it, nothing happened to them except for the hemorrhoids and stuff. But the Philistines were not the children of God. And they are not held to the same standards as the children of God. And the same is true today. Because I think oftentimes, even as Christians, it's like, well, why are they getting away with it? Well, maybe they're not children of God, and you are. And you're held to a higher standard. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. (laughs) And David learned a valuable lesson that day. That God is not mocked. He says what he means, and he means what he says. And that never changes. He never does. And David learned a valuable lesson. And it's quite possible that he was afraid that there was more judgment that was to fall on the children of Israel because of his disobedience. And I know that he wasn't the only one involved in this whole thing. But he was the one responsible because he's the king. And he says... In verse 10, or verse 9, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? (laughs) How, how, How is this going to happen? It was almost like there was this hopelessness that the ark would never come to the... To, to, to the city of Israel. I mean, if people are, are going to die, how could I ever get these, this thing here? And it almost seems like David is blaming the Ark of the, of, of the Covenant for the death of Uzzah. And God was going to show David that it wasn't the Ark that was to blame. The Ark would be a blessing as it was supposed to be. Doing the right thing the right way is always a blessing. Because we see in verses 10 and 11 that when David left it at Obed-Edom's house, that the household of Obed-Edom was blessed tremendously. Verses uh, 12 to 19 says, Now it was told King David, saying, The house of the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom. And all, the, and all that belongs to him because the ark of God. So David went and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the house of David, or to the city of David with gladness. And so it was. When those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep, then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing the, a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought, all, brought up the, the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpets. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looking through the window and saw King David leaping and whirling uh, before the Lord, and she despised him in her, in, her, in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. 
Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished uh, offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men, to each a loaf of bread, a, a piece of meat, and a a cake of raisins. So all the people departed, everyone to his own house. And so you can imagine now, now that he hears that the, the Lord is blessing this guy over there and that it's flowing, the, 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 the blessings are just coming out. David says, I want those blessings. I want those blessings in my life. And guys, there is nothing wrong with wanting the blessings of God in your life. But you have to come into his presence. You have to do things the right way or, or the right things the right way, His ways. Nothing wrong <laughs> with wanting these blessings, and that's what He wanted to do. Doing the right thing the right way will always produce blessings in your life because you will be doing it according to the Word of God. Because God is, is just, he will deal with disobedience with judgment and he will also deal with obedience with blessing. And you can read that in, in Deuteronomy 28. Read that whole chapter. If you, if you want to know what blessings and cursings look like, read that, that chapter. And it says, so, they, so it was when those bearing the ark <laughs> notice that they are now doing it the right way. And because they're doing it the right way, nothing is happening. But I noticed that after six paces, they stopped and they, and they sacrificed, they worshiped. And it was almost like, everybody okay? Let's sacrifice, let's do this. Coast is clear. Okay, let's continue going for another eight miles or whatever it is. And everything went according to what God wanted them to do. And it says this, that, Dan, that David danced before the Lord with all his might. In other words, he got down with his bad self. He was so stoked. He was so excited. He just danced hard. Hard he danced with reckless abandon. I don't think it was a nice little sway like this. It's like, dude, I, I, I could get crazy up here right now. He was dancing hard. Why? Because he was in the presence of the Lord. He was being blessed. He wanted to be in the presence of the Lord. And it would be with reckless abandon. Because I'm in my office, man. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm thinking, I, hope, I just hope he had rhythm. Because it would have been awkward. It's like, yeah, he's dancing hard. Yeah, he's dancing really hard. You know? It's like, nah, dude. You know, like, you know have some rhythm, man. You can, you can dance hard that way. You know, other, other, you know, it's just awkward, you know. But he was wearing the linen ephod as well. And the linen ephod was a priestly garment. And David wasn't a priest. But at that time, it's almost like he strips off his royal robe. And he wears the ephod. Maybe because it was easier to dance with the ephod than the robe. I don't know. But here... We have David, who was not of the tribe of Levi, so he wasn't a priest. But at this moment, he is acting as both king and priest, a picture of Jesus, the son of David, who holds both offices now after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of Melchizedek, or the days of Abraham, Melchizedek was also the king and priest of Salem. 
And now David was worshiping as king of, and priest of Jerusalem, which was the same place as Salem back in the day with Melchizedek. So full circle. God, God, God is bringing the presence back to Salem, uh, to Jerusalem. And then in verses uh, 16 through 19, we see that, that all this celebration is happening and everybody's so happy after 100 years, God's, God's presence is finally back and people are rejoicing to be in the presence of the Lord, but all is not well in the home front. And David is leaping and whir whirling and, and before the Lord. And, and I wonder if he even knows that Michael, Saul's daughter, not, it doesn't say David's wife, but she's not happy. But then again, she is one of many. And I don't want to defend David here <laughs> because, he's a, because I'm a man and he's a man. But sometimes um, guys are just not tuned into their wives and they don't know that they're mad. And in this situation, it was not a good place. Neither one of them was going to be in a good place. But I would say that where she was, and we're going to see that really quick, was not in a good place. And so David is so excited that even though he takes off his royal robe and he's, he has the ephod instead, it is speaking volumes to the people that he has stripped off his royal robe and he is wearing the ephod and he's, he was the anointed king for sure, but it spoke volumes to the people there. He hadn't stopped being king when he took off his robe, but he was just as excited as all the regular people there. So verses 20 to 23, it says, Then David returned to bless his household, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants. As one of the base fellows, shamefully uncovering himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord, who chose me instead of your father, and all his house, to appoint me leader over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord. And I will even be, or I will be even more undignified than this, and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of his, of his death. D David was now doing the right thing, the right way. He was in the right place at the right time. He had done everything the way God wanted him to do it, and everything, the presence of the Lord is back in its rightful place, and he heads home to bless his household. And Proverbs 14.1 says, A wise woman builds her house but a foolish pulls it down with their own hands. Now, I know that husbands and wives need to talk. <laughs> and maybe she just thought, look at him, what a fool. I'm just going to have to tell him right now. <laughs> I'm going to have to let him have it. And as David walks into the, the house, or maybe not even gets in there, he gets co-cocked by her. And she just lets him have it. And whatever spiritual high he was on, I could guarantee you it was out the window. <laughs> it was out the window at that very moment. And I could tell you right now, she probably did not pray about this whole thing. <laughs> 
She just thought, he's acting like a fool, and I need to let him know that. And notice, again, she is Michael, the daughter of Saul, not David's sweetie, <laughs> honey bunch, not, hey, David's first wife, the one he truly, truly loved. No. It's Saul's daughter right now. And she says, how glorious was the king today? Ah, you look really good out there. And what she was telling him was, a real king doesn't act that way. You are acting like a fool in front of all the people of Israel. A real king would never act that way. And the only other king that she could draw from was her father. That's the only other king. And in essence, what she was saying to him, my father would never have acted the way you acted today. And like any husband would do who has been compared to his father-in-law, he shot back. And he didn't hold back. Now, everything that he said to her was true. But I could guarantee you, man, it was out of the flesh to get her back. Proverbs 15, 1 and 2, it says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of the fool pours forth foolishness. Proverbs 17, 14, the beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. <laughs> and David did none of that. He just shot back. Now, none of these guys were right, in my estimation. But I am so glad that the Word of God shares with us everything. Even the quarrel between a husband and a wife <laughs> and how ugly it looked. It was sad. But David, even after he shot back and put her in place, he says, and I will be even more undignified than this. <laughs> in other words, I will never be like your father who was full of pride and would never lower himself or humble himself to be just like normal people because that's what David did in this instance. He was rejoicing not because he was king. He was rejoicing because he was a child of Israel. He was from the nation of Israel. He was a child of God. And he was so glad that the presence of God was back in the nation. And he was so excited that he was out there with the people. And because he could, he blessed them all. And he wanted to go home and bless his family. He had the very intention to go and do that. And it's like, pop. Now, the fact that Michael never had children could mean that David just didn't want to know her anymore because he didn't want the line of Saul to ever be in power or part of his lineage, part of the, the royal monarchy. But it could also mean that Michael never really had spiritual fruit to speak of in the spiritual sense. You see, the presence of the Lord wasn't the most important thing for her. It could have been the dynasty that she could have had or she could have been a part of. And I think that's why she came out the way she did. She despised David. The things that David loved, the presence of the Lord didn't mean that much to her. 
which was sad. And the one that he worshipped, she was going to bring him down to the side and say, you look like a fool when you worship. <laughs> Quit acting like an idiot in the way you worship. And it's like, really, Michael? <laughs> Is that where you're at? And it's a sad commentary here. You know, David gathered a lot of wives together. <laughs> this one was enough. He had enough problems with her. But she never bore children to him. And again, I think it speaks not just in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense, that there was really no fruit in Michael's life. And maybe she was envious, maybe, of her husband's relationship with the Lord and thought, I'm going to bring you down to size. And it's just a sad story the way it ends here. But it is what it is. So let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the good, the bad, and the ugly that we see, even through your word, Lord God. It's lessons for each and every one of us, Lord. Lord, so often, Lord, we, we want to do the right thing, but we do it the wrong way. And we expect your blessing on it, Lord, and, and yet we can't. We can't truly receive those blessings because you've instructed us to do things a certain way. Not because you're a killjoy, <laughs> because you know what's good for us. And I know that we can get angry at you. We can get mad and upset. And oftentimes because we don't understand truly, Lord, what your presence means to us. And we take it lightly. And I just pray for my brothers and sisters right now in this room. The things that they might be doing even today, Lord, that uh, they need to realize that they need to get their hands off of those things, Lord, so they can be blessed. Because, Lord, you won't take it lightly. Pray for them. That, God, you would minister to them. Lord, I, I pray that we would desire to do what is right the way you've instructed us. Because every time we do that, Lord, we get blessed. And so go before us, Lord, as individuals and as a church, Lord. Lord, as, as a pastor here, Lord, I, I don't want to do things that seem right because everybody agrees with it, Lord. We want to do it because you've, you've led us in that direction. We've sought your face, Lord God. You've instructed us to do it this way or that way. And so, Jesus, we look to you and we thank you, Lord. Thank you for the lessons that we can learn here, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. And if you need prayer for anything, man, Come catch these guys right here and we'd love to.